exercise in awareness what right now what is the vasa perception isn't it memory memories arise in the vasa three weeks from now is the future which is in the present thinking about the end of us Pavarana day Katinas these haven't happened yet so future these things are likely to happen but maybe the, who knows what will happen the world might end before the end of the Vasa <laughs> just to reflect the way it is future is what hasn't happened yet so we project you know we end of vasa katinas next year it'll be the spring the autumn equinox in a couple of days <coughs> when the days and nights are even and then it goes into days get shorter and the nights longer. And in the beginning of Vasa, the memory, when we made our determination and everything that's happened up to this moment. <coughs> so memory, memories arise according to conditions. Uh, we wouldn't be thinking about the beginning of Vasa right now if I didn't bring up the subject. So conditions for recalling the beginning of Vasa are here. So that memory will arise. So this is a way of reflecting on the way it is. They're always returning to the moment, the here and now. <clears throat> So then, memory, we remember only certain things. We don't remember everything that's happened during this vasa. Just the, the more, maybe the pleasant or the 
most difficult things that have happened to you during this time. You might remember. <clears throat> Future, who knows what? Enlightenment, uh, finding true bliss and happiness, uh, might end up in total despair, suicidal, might be a terrorist attack on Amravati. Anything, you know, you, anything you can think of could happen, possible. Martians coming or Venusians, UFOs. You, know, you can even make up total kind of absurd fantasies about it if you want. But in terms of right now, the future is what we don't know, is it? It's not the future, then this perception, the word future, the future is about the, the unknown, the potential possibility. <clears throat> now this establishes this awareness. This is the way it is, the Dhamma, the way the Dhamma is the truth of the way it is. And if you keep reflecting like this, then you break down your <clears throat> your illusions about the reality of time. You know, because that we we live in a society that believes totally in time as reality. Where this is the Western world is, uh, you know, very proud of history, keeping records of the past, preserving. Britain, they're always trying to preserve everything of the past. Any old horrible old house that is any age <laughs> has to be preserved. <laughs> A few years ago, ten years ago, they were trying to preserve the first slum in England, up in Yorkshire. <clears throat> Because history, you know, it, it gives us a sense of continuity. It's like your own personal history, doesn't it? It makes you feel like you're some, you've been somebody, a real person, because you have a birth certificate, a passport, and you have memories of, you know, when you were a child, when you went to school, went to work, so forth. And these, these are, <clears throat> give us a sense of being somebody that has continuity in time. And so in awareness this dissolves into nothing. And that can be pretty frightening for many, for most people I think, when their egos start falling apart. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's like you're, you're emotionally very, it's terrifying. It's even better to, you know, to hold on to terrible memories. At least gives you a sense of being somebody that was abused and so forth, and treated badly. <laughs> and that's somebody. That's a memory of being, you know. That if you get a lot of abuse, then it does create a sense of of being somebody who gets abused. So even the, even the, the difficulties of life, when we hold on to the memories, and 
<coughs> create this sense of a, of a permanent personality, a soul that, that has, a, has a history to it. Fascinating about previous lives, isn't it? We become fascinated by what were my previous lives? And uh, because that, that's interesting to think of, you know, somebody can, can read your aura and you can figure out you were, you know, uh, somebody in China or India or Rome, you know, during the ancient times. You know, several monks have gone to Rome into the Colosseum and remembered being being killed by lions or wild animals. <laughs> and, uh, so that it gives you a sense of having been somebody in the past. So right now, what are you? Can you find yourself? You know, can you find? Is there is there a memory that that you can sustain? You know, even a previous life memory of being eaten by lions in the Colosseum or or yesterday or the the greatest uh, moment of your life if you remember it can you sustain anything like that for very long <clears throat> or being abused or unloved or mistreated so i don't know about you but i can't i've tried <laughs> The, uh, just to see if I could do it, you know, just begin to to see just the the evanescence of memory. There's nothing much to it, except when we grasp it and believe in it and uh, and make it. We can we can create things around memory. So right now, say. The, with this reflective or intuitive awareness, you know, I can't find anybody because the, you know there's no me the memory. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I can see through the limitation of memory. I'm not looking for myself as some kind that I remember being anything, and I can't create some something and believe in that either. So I can't find a personality that I could say is really mine. The body is begin to see is it, just it's like you know the flowers in the garden or anything that grows and uh, you know lives on this planet. It's just a condition in nature. So at this moment, then there's, you reach this, you begin to recognize, realize this empty point, still point of pure awareness. I can't find Ajahn Sumedho or anything like that. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And yet, you know, if I cling to the to the, the this name Ajahn Sumedho or whatever, then it then I can, you know, I can create a, a scenario about me as a personality that ordained and, and did this and that in the monastic life. We 
quite an interesting lot of memories to, to uh, you know, entertain you all about my life as Sumato. <clears throat> but then the reality of this moment is that I can't find it. You know, there's this, and and then a lot of the memories that I would tell others, I only tell you the stuff I want you to hear. It's a selected biography of Sumato. <clears throat> so these are not trustworthy, you know, these are not anything to, to um, develop that much interest in or commitment to is oneself as a person or a physical being even. It's important to to recognize its limitations, not to despise or deny or reject, but to recognize the way it is. So I've been in uh, Norway for the past week. That's a perception, isn't it? Everybody knows Norway is a country in Scandinavia. Northern Europe, and so uh, they can talk about my experiences in Norway. <clears throat> and so that Norway now is a memory. Even when I was there, you know, I'm, what am I doing? It's just memories, it's perceptions rising up. Everybody there in Norway believes they're in Norway. So we all <laughs> agree on that. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> it's, uh, and we call, and we just like we call this England, don't we? We all agree to call this place England. Uh, it actually doesn't have a name, except we give it one. <clears throat> right now, Norway is, uh, is, is a memory for you. For most of you, it's an abstraction. You know, if you've never been there, you don't have any memory of it, except reading about it and seeing it on a map. And then we have certain perceptions of what Norway is about. Snow and skiing and... Uh, what, what kind of, when you say Norway, what kind of perceptions arise? <clears throat> so investigating how, how the mind is, you know, because these, we, you know, we, we give, you can, you know, in the world today, everybody totally committed to their delusions. You know, the, the, um, the war and uh, the American occupation of Iraq, uh, Tony Blair, George Bush, these are all perceptions of the mind. And, uh, and yet we can get very indignant or excited or wound up just by saying these names. Just by, nowadays just most people I know say George Bush and they, they you know, you feel this tension arise. <laughs> it's only, you know, two words. <clears throat> w. <laughs> you 
You can't say dummy anymore, they're going tense. <laughs> or Tony. Tony is your common name, but now say Tony and everybody. You know, can't trust that guy. They're just noting these reactions, not condemning or saying you shouldn't have them. They're just observing the way it is, how, how things can affect us, how the emotions are created around the liking, disliking, approving, disapproving. In Norway, they, they had uh, the Thai ambassador invited myself and Ajahn Panya Saro, and so we had, you know, kind of red carpet treatment, staying in the embassy and in Oslo, and a chauffeured Mercedes Benz, and I was <laughs> black sedan, very impressive, and. Uh, then the uh, ambassador was with us all the time, took a great deal of interest. He's quite interested in meditation. In fact, he's been on retreats here. Well, that's good to see, isn't it? It's to see that, that uh, a Thai ambassador who has a lot of duties and, you know, is, is high up in the social order begins to see through. You know, he's, he's, you know, awakened to all the foolishness and pointlessness. And yet he's in a, in a, you know, has a good job and highly regarded and interesting life. And there comes a point where it's never enough. You know, just to have, you know, high status and wealth and success and all the rest. In, in, on the worldly plane. The interesting, Norway seems as, you know, almost a perfect country because we, was the, I'm, we were there just in, when the weather's very nice. You know, I don't know how perfect it is in the winter, but in the autumn, it's incredibly beautiful, uh, very clean, much cleaner than England. <laughs> uh, like Oslo is... Uh, uh, you know, you could eat off the pavement of clean. And uh, you don't see litter and plastic bags lying around like you do in, in London. And uh, everything seems to, you know, be much well-ordered and um, friendly place. Very lovely city, beautiful fountains and parks. They have one park that, uh, that we've enjoyed was the Big Land Park, which is quite famous, well, you might know about it. He was a sculptor who created this park and all these uh, very impressive granite sculptures of, of human beings in various stages of emotion and action, movement. Uh, they have this huge column in the middle, it's kind of like a, a mound, and this huge column of human bodies sculpted in one piece of granite, very, like this, almost as high as this temple. 
really. And, uh, and all these figures of humanity, men, women, old men and old women and children and babies and corpses, uh, all kind of on top of each other in various ways, in various, you know, old naked figures in these kind of sculpted on top of each other in the most amazing way. So it's like all the, this incredible bit of, uh, of interesting art, really, carved out of a solid piece of granite. Very skillful, very skillfully done. And then of surrounding this, this column, all these kind of gargantuan figures of men and women, uh, all nude, uh, in various poses of despair or in love or anger or depressed or elated or uh, the children, uh, old people, thin people, fat people, everything there. And then everywhere there's these figures, uh, huge granite figures are. And, they, and children are climbing up on top of them. <laughs> So then, uh, in the same part, the same artist developed the, the fountain at the center. The Norway, thing, they seem to create in Oslo most beautiful fountains, water fountains, in the parks. Uh, they're quite original and very beautiful. This one is of these. Uh, it's done in bronze. That has these kind of very strong figures of men holding up this huge kind of disc with the water coming up and flowing over, and then. Surrounding it is in a square, the, the very stages of birth and death of human men and women in bronze. And they have these kind of in trees, the, the tree figure, the tree figure, then the, the children or the men and women somehow related in this tree. And the tree is the kind of the, the continuous theme with the human figures, you know in them or, or trying to get out of them or hanging on to them or that in, in forms of children, youth, old age and death. There's even one with a ghost in it. One tree has a ghost in it. So it, it's a good contemplation if you like reflecting on, on these things because it, it's a very humanistic part and then that's what I found in in Oslo was uh, everywhere there's there's figures of human beings everywhere in all the parks where we go to naked human beings uh, children or whatever <laughs> and uh, they seem to you know it's a country that seems to have kind of um, elevated this, this sense of being human to uh, be their kind of peak of cultural achievement. You don't get the impression it's a highly religious country, you know, that, that spiritually it's, uh, it doesn't seem all that tuned in. The churches look pretty empty and like museums. And uh, 
And then with all these figures in the Big Land Park that are, you know, doing all these various things, and these passionate poses or depressed or or angry, or men fighting or or whatever, there's no uh, nobody's ever created a Buddha image. I've noticed this in, in Western iconography, even in Christian iconography, there's no kind of equivalent to a, a Buddha, Buddha Rupa. It's just contemplating this, that, that, that the Buddha Rupa is, uh, is a kind of, to me, a kind of ultimate achievement in presenting the human form. In, in perfect balance, isn't it? Where the eyes are open, uh, there's composure, there's, you know, it's not depressed or angry or uh, laughing hilariously, uh, but calm and clear and balanced, a sense of emotional balance and, and uh, equanimity, enlightenment, the human form that had that where the the uh, consciousness is no longer clung to out of ignorance. <clears throat> so in, in this way, the the, uh, the Buddha icon is to me a kind of the ultimate product of uh, you know that comes out of contemplation, reflection, and experience. So in, uh, you know, in the, we, we're used to the passionate forms in uh, European culture, aren't we? The, the warriors and the kings and the queens and the, and the uh, <coughs> scientists and the, the uh, you know, everything from gnomes to dwarfs to fairies and, and whatever variations on, on human form in either exaggerated or, or photographic likenesses, uh, the human form is, uh, you know, is, is the vehicle that we all are experiencing at this moment. So, as, you know, then, then the when we when we go into ex- take on the the position, say of ideals, you know, of becoming something, becoming the king or the warrior or the the queen or the the common man or the whatever whatever role you you incline to, you know, on a personal level, then we tend to develop into that. We become like that. Whatever we grasp, we become what we are grasping. So if we're, you know, if we feel despair and hopeless, and then we become someone who's depressed. If we want to become a, you know, a warrior, one who fights and is heroic, then we have to do things to prove that we, we are that way, the identity of a hero.
And yet, how many heroes, you know, you, you might be sculpted and put into a public park as a great hero, but the, the man or woman themselves, how can you hold on and be a hero 24 hours a day? You know, the, the, you, can, you can make it out of granite, which can last hundreds of years, but the actual moment is very brief of the joy, the kind of exultation of, of being heroic is not a, not a condition that you can sustain. It's very brief and then it's gone. Being a winner, a champion. <clears throat> so then, if your if you're, things you're grasping are so high up, you know, the higher they are, the the, the you know the more difficult they are to sustain. Uh, so if you're too refined and too special, then it, it it's uh, hard to maintain that the illusion of being that for very long. So then we kind of sink into a just common, just a nobody. I'm just a nobody, just an ordinary guy, really. You know, I'm special talents. Done all right. <laughs> and uh, getting by and that's what we often you hear in, in England you know people just committed to a level of kind of mediocrity <laughs> as themselves because at least that's more sustainable isn't it than, than having to always be the hero the champion mm. So, uh, you know, that's hard work, sustaining that illusion of the, the, the extreme, extremities. Imagine you go into the hell realm, being really evil would be a hard one to sustain. You know, if you're really committed to being the most evil human being on the planet. Um, but I think the, the miserable states seem to last longer than the, than the ethereal ones. <laughs> It's not fair, is it? But it is just the way it seems. <laughs> like heaven, uh, you know, a more, uh, five minutes of happiness, you know, is very brief. It's like a second is over. Five minutes of misery is like an eternity. Like when you're looking at the clock waiting for the bell to ring, five minutes and your legs are aching. And you think, just be patient. Five minutes is not very long. And you think, oh, five minutes have gone by, and you look at the clock. Only one minute. <laughs> and then you start hating the monk in charge of the bell because you think he's doing, not bringing it deliberately to torture you. And you start projecting. So by, by even grasping the fact that well, I'm just a nobody, an ordinary guy with, you know, that, that is also uh, a created. That's a cre created condition. It's not the way it is.
Or we might see ourselves in more negative terms even. It's like, I'm hopeless, I'm no good, I can't do anything right, and that and we get into really depressive mental states. And it's interesting, the ambassador said that Norway has the highest suicide rate in Europe. So I thought, you know, this is perfect a place to live in as you could find on this planet. Why isn't everybody happy? Yeah, it's well-run, good government, welfare system from cradle to grave, take care of you no matter what. Wealthy, clean, beautiful, democratic. Uh, sounds, you know, it sounds as good as you can find and yet has a high suicide rate. Why is that? Why would, if, if everything was so, so nice like that, why would people want to kill themselves? But it's strange, that's, that's what happens, isn't it? A, a higher suicide rate is usually in the affluent, affluent world. <clears throat> and this, because, the, you know, if you, one thing about uh, being poor and where you have to strive to survive there's a purpose to your life isn't it you know if you if you've just got to you know got to forget yourself and just try to find enough rice to feed yourself and your family for the day you can't you can't think about life all that much and how you know about yourself you've got to put some effort into just basic survival. <clears throat> Not that I'm promoting poverty as, as <laughs> and that, but I'm just reflecting on when, when life becomes too easy and there's no challenge and we can easily drift into and there's no spiritual goal in it. You're just, you know, you're just looking for happiness and and uh, you know ease and comfort and exciting things and and romance and adventures and all this gets very boring after a while just this endless pursuit of happiness and seeking all the time for some some kind of pleasure through the senses or or through power or through um, you know just through grasping the conditioned realm, the samsara, it just, after a while, if there's no challenge, if there's nothing beyond it, it becomes rather dreary. Like as you get older too, you see how, you know, you've seen enough and you're a bit weary of it all. You've seen, seen the same things over and over again in the kind of stupidity uh, of your own mind, conditioned mind, and the and the society you're in. <clears throat> so, then you become you have this nipita, kind of world weariness. So the Buddha, you know, encouraged us to reflect and know the world is the world. And this means what we create out of ignorance. It doesn't mean the planet Earth. The and when Buddhist terms, when the Buddha talks about the end of the world, he's not talking about Armageddon. 
in the in the sense that we mean that, but it is pointing to the world we create because each one of us lives in our own world, you know, and you begin to recognize you create the world that you're living in. If you're in Norway or England or Thailand or wherever, you and and the kind of memories and and the sense of yourself, your history, your status, all these are things you create and recreate, keep and grasping and believing in. So we can live our lives just seeking adventures and challenges, even the, the, like adventure. I, li I like adventures, you see. So it's always nice to have an, an adventure to look forward to. So this is, and even in old age, you know, I can't, I'm not so fit anymore, so I, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I mean, I do, I went to the uh, uh, museum in Oslo where they have all the, where the expeditions of the Arctic, and they have the boat, the big boat, the Fram, that, that crossed the northern, northwest passage, and had all these photographs, and <clears throat> I find this just incredibly interesting, you know, the Arctic, having, you know, been there last May, and then, then the, the, this, this kind of intensity of effort that the, like, Nansen and people like that put into finding the, the Northwest Passage in the early part of last century. And uh, they can be iced in, you know, caught up in the North all winter long in the freezing cold and chose the boat is completely covered with ice and snow and, and just, you know, being stuck, not knowing if you're ever going to get out of the, this. And, uh, and yet there's something exciting about it. And yet you have to be patient because, you know, you, you're going to spend six months frozen in a, you know, in a frozen ship uh, surviving, there is a level of purpose to one's life then, isn't it? To survive. When you're on the edge and you're going to survive and get out of there, there's some kind of thrust to one's life, meaning, you know, it, winning, achieving, being the one who, who finds the Northwest Passage, who goes to the, get, finds, gets to the North Pole first. That gives one a purpose. But going back to Oslo, sitting in your nice, lovely flat and with its central heating and double glazed windows, <laughs> you want to kill yourself. No meaning anymore. <laughs> because if that's all you have to look forward to, isn't it? It's just central heating and thick carpets and pickled herring and <laughs> it, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's nice when you don't have those things but once you have them then they become meaningless.
So in the, the monastic life, you know, being a Buddhist monk, that's an adventure because you, you get frozen in sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you go through various things. But the whole point, isn't it? It's got a purpose for this realization. They, um, at least this for me, this has been, been a great adventure because of the, the way my mind works. You know, just noticing what a tyrannical superego I have. And having to learn how to understand that and how to not get caught, not get hooked by it, because it's very powerful. And it's supported by cultural conditioning and, and the way everyone thinks anyway. It's not just some kind of neurotic, freaky thing of mine. It's, it's very much conditioned by uh, society and the, the family and ethnic background that I'm from. The sense of self and, uh, and, and the judgment, judgmental side incredible critic that uh, that uh, complains and and uh, criticizes endlessly me so living with this has not been uh, you know it's not been an easy ride being having these these conditions in in consciousness because uh, even though to you I might look like easygoing character, uh, you know, it's it's not it's not been easy because it's a constant challenge to not get hooked, or if get hooked to 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 wake up to that. And and once you recognize that the the hooks are your own attachments, you know, it's not like anything's hooking me. It's just how I attach to, to those habits of mind, the critical faculty, or the emotional habits that I have. How I'm so ashamed of a lot of them, some of the emotional habits. You know, not because they seem so stupid and immature. Or, you know, the vanity and conceit, or the... the uh, these kind of mental states, you know, are humiliating, embarrassing, and, uh, you know, because one doesn't want to be seen and hopes other people don't notice because we have the conceit of wanting to be somebody, you know, an image of something in the society where you, you people... Uh, look up to you and, and respect you and like you and then your, your fear of, of being rejected or being criticized or humiliated in some way by the society or by others or even one other person like being humiliated is, brings out rage in me somebody humiliates me I feel I could you know I could if, if I didn't respect the Bana Dibata precept, I could easily be a murderer. 
but felt like murdering people sometimes, especially when, when humiliated. <clears throat> so, and then, so that they, they um, and yet life does provide us with endless humiliations, isn't it? Old age is, is, you know, it's getting increasingly humiliating to my ego. Uh, it's not kind. <laughs> you know, so then uh, the, the decrepitness of an aging body and, the, and so forth is, uh, is not, you know, isn't how the ego wants to be seen. You know, you want to be seen as still vigorous, strong. Find yourself caving in and and not walking so quickly and your joints seizing up a bit, things like this. And if your ego is strong, you know, not wanting to, to be considered old, like we're very, you know, we're, we're a youth, uh, raise youth to a high pinnacle of, of high, you know, that's what we'd like to be all the time, young and beautiful forever. And yet, that's not the way it is. That reaches a peak, and then it's downhill. You, you don't get younger. So then the, the, the awareness, isn't it? The Buddha pointed to old age, sickness, death as the messengers. They're the, they're the things that, that wake us up. Oftentimes it, being healthy and young and beautiful can make us very dozy. You know, we can, we can have a lot of pleasure riding on those kind of conditions, identifying with them, but you can't sustain them. So the signs of old age or sickness, uh, disabilities, death and loss, separation, seeing the loved ones die, being around dying people, sick people, and so forth, are they are they're the oftentimes for many of us the awakening, the awaken us to beginning to look at life, not complain about it and blame God or whatever for it, but begin to what is it all about? What is its purpose? What is its meaning? What is it all about? Anyway, so when you start asking those questions, then you start, you can't get the answers from anybody. Because you don't, you don't want an answer, you just, that those very questions open you up. Because you have to stop just grasping and repeating the same things and start noticing, observing, witnessing, paying attention to all the habits you've already acquired, to the body, not, not to complain about it because it's getting old and, and blame God for, for ruining your beautiful appearance, but to understand it. You know, we, we can't just take it for granted. Like when you're young and healthy, you can take a lot for granted. You can make your body do anything you want almost. <clears throat> But then you can't sustain that, and that you, you, uh, 
it lasts for a while and then it, it, you can't do it anymore. The body will not <coughs> do what you want. And then when you get into middle age and old age, you know, it's not going to do what I want. It's, it's going to be the way it is. So it's learning to, to, to recognize this, to open to it. So it's not a, a rejection or a dismissal of it, but a, a willingness to, to understand it, to learn from old age, sickness, death, separation, sorrow and grief. It's not a depressing thing that Buddhism is about suffering and grief and despair because that is really not understanding the, the Buddha in any way decent at all. It's, it's pointing to these uh, in order to awaken, to turn to, to understand rather than running away from them. Because the usual reaction is to run away from anything unpleasant, get away from it. As soon as we have pain in the body, give me, a, give me an anodyne, an analgesic, an aspirin, paracetamol, morphine, <laughs> anything. <laughs> and I can get rid of it as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, they want to get rid of any emotional discomfort or physical discomfort as quickly as possible is a, a very natural reaction it's not unnatural but if that's all we do then, then our life is increasingly more difficult as you get older so the Buddha's advice was to understand it means to turn to something to understand something you have to accept it recognize it allow it to be what it is not try to complain about it because it isn't what you want. But even if it's what you don't want at all, you, have, you can understand it. Learn from it. So then this is the practice of awareness. Sati Sampachanya. Then in the adventure, realm of adventure, it's, a, it's, a, it's not like you just suddenly solve the problem and then it's an easy ride. It's, it's, it, you learn, you discover how to learn from the way it is as the, things, as the conditions change. So, you, you know, you, you're you're discovering or you're realizing, recognizing the way of understanding the conditions for what they are, the way it is, the suchness, the the datada in Pali they use this datada, the takada, the this this word conveys uh, what they are in translating which is suchness or as is, the way it is. It's, it's not, you know, as soon as you want to label and judge the way it is, then it becomes more than what it is. You know, as soon as I 
name something, it's slightly more than what it is. It's learning to trust in the awareness before a name for anything comes up. That's a kind of going into this empty state, not disappearing into a, a void of nothingness, but recognizing when the when the aware when the consciousness is quite empty, when you're not grasping anything, when there's awareness of being before you you know you acclaim it or judge it or even name it. When we give names to things, then it then we go fall back into the old patterns of what I like, don't like, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. You know, that we, we, we get into, it's wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. And we get caught back into the cycle of, of our super egos and our emotional habits. So we get caught in this swirling cycle of samsara again. So the way out of that is to is through awareness of it. So, just this, uh, this to uh, encourage you, because it does, because, you know, trying too hard and, uh, and always trying to get something from meditation, you know, you're, you're not going to get what you want. So, if you you know if you preconceive some goal of what you want, you know you're not going to get it. So it's going to be terribly disappointing. Some people feel they're very disappointed having meditated for years because they're always expecting to get something that they never quite get, or if they do get, they lose. Anything you get, you lose. There are even attainments in in concentration and all that, you're going to lose them. You can't sustain them. So it's, it's a different, you know, the, the, that attaining is a worldly condition, attitude. That's the way the world operates. Getting something, achieving something, becoming is, uh, is, is the worldly mind uh, way of thinking the way we, we see ourselves or even our meditation practice or we even interpret Buddhism in those terms even though that's not what is that but it doesn't work if you're going to practice it doesn't work like that you don't attain you don't get something or if you do you, you lose it you know I've, I've, I've attained you know refined states and they lose them. Uh, you know, so that, and then you keep, and then you want them. When you lose it, you know, and then you remember you want it again. So you go, 
you try to get it again, you know, you keep doing all the things that you remember doing, you know, to, to get those blissful states. And then um, sometimes you might get it, <laughs> uh, you know, but you, you can't keep it. And it, after a while you, you know, you get very into c controlling everything. You've got to, you've got to control everything around you. So, to me that isn't, I'm not interested in that, that as such always leads to kind of despair and disappointment anyway. So, what I found more useful is in the, the awareness of that, of, of trusting in this awareness in the here and now. Learning to recognize it, to really appreciate it, treasure it. <clears throat> so it's not like an attainment, it's through real, by paying attention. And learning to, to recognize what grasping, what, what, how grasping, you know, when you, when you, you can't do it, you're grasping something and you're trying to get something or you, you grasp the idea of what I'm saying which, yeah, and you don't see that you're grasping it. But as you begin to observe just the, the tension of grasping, of wanting, of not wanting, of trying and all the rest, then you begin to, to see that the, the, the attention that is sustainable is not through just, you know, Willfulness. There's some the right effort. Right effort is is a balanced effort, not just a, you know me determining to get it. So it becomes more more sense of open receptivity, kind of relaxed attention, a listening, an attunement to now and, and uh, really willing to look at things as they are, the anicca dukkanata of the of sankharas. You know, those are the ways to investigate, to just notice the, the, the limitations of conditionality. How it's, you know, it is, its nature is, is like this, the grasping is, is the cause of the suffering. So it's the grasping of samsara, not samsara even. So it's back to this grasping. And then, then you, you see the grasping, how the, you know, whenever you're suffering, uh, you're unhappy or upset or angry or depressed or whatever, it's and you you know you're you're grasping. Um, I I know that I'm grasping something when this happens. If it if it you know I can feel anger arise. When the conditions safe <clears throat> for anger are present, somebody hu humiliates me personally. I can feel. I can still feel that rage arising but I know better than to grasp it 
there's a difference, isn't it? I'm not uh, the the karma. I still have a karma with that, but it, but it more and more the confidence comes in non-grasping. <clears throat> then, if I should lose mindfulness with it, then I start grasping it, and I get warmed up with how dare they and into this raging mode. I know there's a point where I, I catch, I see I'm grasping, and I practice letting go, relinquishing that. Not in suppressing, it's not in try, getting rid of but Really knowing, you know, this you can test out yourself of relinquishing or letting something be, letting it be what it is, and then it goes naturally, it's nature's to cease. So, you know, don't, don't be upset by the fact that even after years of meditation you still feel anger or lust or things like this. It's, uh, it's, uh, that's not the problem. It's the ignorance, the avicca and the grasping out of that ignorance. So that we, we have the, this, uh, this awareness as our refuge. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. <clears throat>